Our scripture reading today is from Mark 5, 24 through 34. You can find this on page 840 in the Bibles in your pews. Mark 5, 24 to 34. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Leviticus, chapter 15. If you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you, you can find it on page 94. And as you turn there, I just want to say thank you to you all for your prayers. Uh, thanks for your prayers uh, for me and for my family. Thanks as well to the elders for uh, really stepping up last week to support me in my absence. So Jimmy, thank you. And Steve, thank you so much for uh, your willingness to, to read the sermon. That extra help was a, a tremendous blessing. I'm happy to report to you that our family is finally on the mend. Uh, we're, we're making it back. Uh, and I, I'll also admit to you that it was a fascinating experience being sick in the middle of, of studying Leviticus. The, uh, the, the Levitical laws really helped uh, give a window into the experience of, of being sick, and the experience of being in sick also allowed me a lot of chance to reflect on everything that the Levitical laws were teaching, especially as I asked one particular question over and over and over again in my household, uh, you can probably guess what it was if you've ever had sick kids in a household before. Uh, did you wash your hands? Uh, that's the money question when there is an illness that is starting to spread throughout the house. Did you wash your hands uh, before you pick that thing up? Did you wash your hands before you eat that? Did you wash your hands before you leave this room right here? Did you wash your hands? That question did you wash your hands, is at once uh, simultaneously very personal and very private and, and also seemingly inconsequential. It, it's very personal. You're asking a, a personal question about someone's personal hygiene habits. And the possibility for embarrassment is, is somewhat high at that point in time. It's also private. There, there's hardly any way to really verify if someone washed their hands well 
right? And even just a few minutes after the fact, there's, there's no way of being able to assess the quality of, of that, that hand uh, washing procedure. Uh, and also, depending on your age and your mindset, it seems inconsequential to most kids, not washing hands is not a big deal. But as my family and I experienced this past week, it is frighteningly easy for an entire household to get infected by something that is highly contagious. And so it's actually a really important question. Those 20 seconds, as personal and private and small as they seem at first, have huge potential. They keep you safe. They, they keep other people safe, and they reinforce in your heart and mind your social commitments and your social connections. Your hand-washing teaches you that your habits affect your community. And so, faithfulness in personal, private, seemingly inconsequential things brings blessing. And that's our in for Leviticus chapter 15. These laws concern regular and irregular bodily discharges. These are personal, private, seemingly inconsequential things. And as I read the text, we will wonder, how dare you ask that? And, and we'll wonder, how would anyone even know? And we'll wonder, what's the big deal anyway? And it's precisely in those moments and in those questions that God invites faithfulness. God says to us clearly in this passage, trust me, faithfulness in personal, private, seemingly inconsequential things brings blessing. That's the message for us in Leviticus chapter 15. And so let's turn our attention there now to hear God's holy and edifying word for us this morning. Leviticus 15. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And this is the law of his uncleanness for a discharge. Whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Every bed on which the one with the discharge lies shall be unclean, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever sits on anything on which the one with the discharge has sat shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And if the one with the discharge spits on someone who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening." And any saddle on which the one with the discharge rides shall be unclean. And whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries such things shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. 
Anyone whom the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And an earthenware vessel that the one with the discharge touches shall be broken and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. And when the one with the discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing and wash his clothes. And he shall bathe his body in fresh water and shall be clean. And on the eighth day, he shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and come before the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. And the priest shall use them, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord for his discharge. If a man has an emission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until the evening. And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed with water and be unclean until the evening. If a man lies with a woman and has an emission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body, in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening, whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits. When he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity, and whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening, but if she is cleansed of her discharge... She shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord and for her unclean discharge." Thus, you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. 
This is the law for him who has a discharge and for him who has an emission of semen becoming unclean thereby. Also for her who is unwell with her menstrual impurity, that is for anyone, male or female, who has a discharge and for the man who lies with a woman who is unclean. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this word of of caution and of grace and of promise. And I ask now that you, through your spirit, would illuminate your preached word to us so that we would hear your voice and see your will as good and beautiful. Give us eyes to see our own sin. Inspect, O Lord, the hidden places in our hearts and reveal them to us so that we would not hide from you anymore but bring them into the light and seek purity in every aspect of our lives and in every corner of our being. Bless your word now through your spirit. Uh, Would you speak to us, for we are here to listen. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So to our Western ears, Leviticus 15, I think, is the most awkward of the cleanliness laws that we have read so far. But throughout history, uh, plenty of cultures and plenty of other religions have dealt with bodily emissions in their written code. In fact, with Ramadan starting this past week, uh, many of us might be considering ways that we can connect with our Muslim friends and neighbors and think about ways of talking about the, the grace of Jesus Christ. And this passage actually offers us a doorway into that. Most Muslims are very familiar with cleanliness laws and laws about bodily emissions. And so these laws in Leviticus 15 offer us a fantastic opportunity to talk about Christian distinctives. As we'll see, these laws lead us directly to Jesus Christ and his redeeming work for us. To get there, we're going to need to understand the ritual behavior that's described in this text, and then we're going to need to understand the spiritual commitments that the rituals reinforced. The rituals reinforced the spiritual. It's just like washing hands. The routine of washing hands reinforces the social commitments of a household. We do this to care for our family. And it's like that here in our text. And even though we as Christians are no longer bound by these Levitical laws, the ritual side of these laws, uh, the rituals that we read about still inform a deep Christian spirituality that speaks to us in our day and age. And so for us to unpack the ritual side of this text, the ritual behaviors that are embodied here, let's ask two questions. First, what's the problem And second, why does God care? What's the problem and why does God care? First, what's the problem? Like chapters 11 through 14, this text aims to correct 
a problem. Leviticus 15 tells us that bodily emissions, and specifically bodily emissions from reproductive organs, these were ritually defiling in a highly contagious way. Now, before we go on, we need to remember that we're talking about ritual impurity, not uh, moral goodness or badness. Uh, Hopefully this is uh, pretty familiar to us by now. You can think of the chart that we've looked at week in and week out. In Leviticus, your ritual status determined how close you could get to God based on three ritual states. So if you were holy, if you were ritually holy, it meant that you belonged to God in a special way. You could get as close to God in the tabernacle as as humanly possible. If you were ritually clean, then you were able to approach God at the tabernacle. And if you were ritually unclean, then you were unable to approach God at the tabernacle. And according to this text, there were four types of uh, bodily emissions that made a person ritually unclean, ritually unable to approach God in the tabernacle. As we hear it in the text, there are two for men, there are two for women, and we could break it down like this. If you had a bodily discharge that was routine or episodic, Uh, Then you had a a minor defilement, and the period of defiling was a lot shorter. Uh, If you had a bodily discharge that lasted longer than normal, then you had a major defilement, and the period of defilement and the rituals associated with it were also then more elaborate. So there was a major and a minor defilement for men, and a major and a minor defilement for women. That's just how the the text breaks down. And what's significant about these particular issues is that these bodily emissions were, were contagious, much more highly contagious than anything we've read so far. Everything that we've read so far, largely the uncleanness was contained to the person who had, uh, had the issue, but, but these ritual impurities could spread throughout the entire congregation of Israel like wildfire. You heard it as I read the text. The impurity could spread from one person to another person directly through touch, or the impurity could spread to another person through another object. So if you're unclean, you could touch something, and then that unclean thing could then make someone else unclean. And if you left that unchecked, if you didn't deal with it, you can see how that uncleanness would just spread and infect. It could infect an entire household. It could draw more people into it, infect other households. And before long, if you weren't careful, someone who was ritually unclean would go to the tabernacle and would bring that uncleanness into the presence of God with disastrous results. Verse 31, thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die. Lest they they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. And so that's the problem. Uh, the, the problem is that bodily emissions were ritually defiling and highly ritually contagious. Now, this doesn't mean that sex is uh, dirty 
or shameful. Many skeptics use this very passage to say that the Bible has a negative view of sex and sexuality, but that's not true. The Bible has a very high view of sexuality. Genesis 1 and 2, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. According to the Bible, human sexuality is a gift. And that gift is even on display here in these first half is about men, the second half is about women, and the one verse that links those two halves together, the one verse that links together the verses about men and women is about marital intimacy, and that's in verse 18. And so this passage, Leviticus 15, echoes the creation story, a man a woman brought together in one flesh. Even here in Leviticus 15, sex is a gift, but it's a gift with limits. God's gift is meant to be enjoyed only according to God's design. And time and time again, the Bible insists that holiness is more important than sex. And so sex isn't dirty or shameful, and neither are these bodily emissions. They are a part of life. God is not ashamed uh, of them. God is not embarrassed by them. God designed our bodies. He's not rejecting our bodies. Here in these laws, this is ritual impurity. God is not wrinkling his nose at us and thinking, uh, thinking particular negative thoughts about his creation. Some, some people hear the restrictions that are placed on women here and think that God is particularly put off by periods. Uh, the men were unclean for a day, the women were unclean uh, for seven, and it seems that these minor impurities for women were dealt with a little bit more harshly. But let's remember the historical context. This was an age when modern sanitary products were unavailable, and so this law allowed women to rest and to recuperate in private. And she wasn't, at this time, a societal outcast. She wasn't being rejected by her household. People could offer her comfort. People could help her out. Uh, and if they became ritually impure in the process, then that was actually easily dealt with. It wasn't a moral penalty to become ritually unclean. All they needed to do was be aware of it so that they didn't go into the tabernacle while they were ritually unclean. And so relational contact didn't need to cease, but sexual contact did in Leviticus 18 and 20, that we'll get to those in a couple of weeks, God explicitly prohibits a man lying with a woman during her menstruation. And so far from being oppressive, these laws were actually particularly gracious for women. Women were given permission to withdraw socially for a period of time during a, a trying time, and both men and women were taught to prize faithfulness to God over sexual fulfillment during that time. Again, holiness is more important than sex. And that leads to the second question, why does God care? Why does God care about these personal 
private, seemingly inconsequential things. Doesn't this confirm the skeptics' image that God is a voyeuristic, prudish, and micromanaging deity? No. No, God cares about these things because God knows how easily personal, private, seemingly inconsequential things become all-consuming. And how these tiny things that we would like to think are no big deal can balloon out of proportion in our hearts and displace in our hearts the love that we have for God with an appetite for the gifts that God gives us. And so God, in this text, draws a very personal line. He says, enjoy the common things, enjoy the gifts, but leave them behind when you come to the tabernacle to worship. And that's what all these laws do. Think back through all of the things that we've studied since chapter 11. Uh, we've talked about food, childbirth, health, possessions, sex. These are good things that can take over our hearts. And so God says, make a distinction in your lives. Make a distinction between good things and holy things. Make a clean break. And so, so when you come into the tabernacle, you're here for one reason, one single-minded purpose. You're here to worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And so every time the people followed these rules and made these distinctions in their lives, they were making a spiritual commitment. I want to love the giver of gifts rather than the gifts themselves. I'm willing to distinguish in my life, in my heart, in my affections, even in my body. I'm willing to distinguish between good things and holy things. God, in this text, is not merely shaping household habits. He is shaping hearts. These ritual behaviors reinforced spiritual commitments. And these spiritual commitments run right through the heart of biblical Christianity. They are the same, whether it's in the Old Testament, whether it's in the New Testament, they are the same because the wholehearted worshiper wants the same things. And so let's ask this. If you followed these laws with your whole heart, what would you want? Just imagine that. Put yourself in these shoes. If you followed these laws with your whole heart, what would you want? Well, the first thing that you would want is you would want to keep your worship pure. You'd want to keep your worship pure. God makes it very clear in these laws. Keep your worship pure pure from any common things from the common realm, especially anything having to do with sex. Leviticus 15, it really, really highlights that anything even remotely connected with sex should be kept separate from the tabernacle. And this was highly countercultural for the Israelite community. Almost every single other ancient Near Eastern culture and tradition mingled sex 
with religion. You would go to the temple and you'd see fertility rites and temple prostitutes and all sorts of pagan rituals that connected sex with religious practices and God clearly says, not in Israel. You, you are not going to do that. You're going to keep that separate from tabernacle worship. And in doing that, these laws, uh, it, it, it cultivated in your heart a desire for wholehearted, single-minded worship. You are here to focus on God. Keep your worship pure. That's a deeply Christian desire, isn't it? Keep your worship pure. Pure. This text makes us long for pure worship, a time where the things of this world don't shoehorn their way into our attention and distract us from our encounter with God. When, when worship is free from worldly distractions, it's a blessing. Our lives are, are normally filled, they're consumed with stuff like politics, policies, the pet cultural hangups of some leader or some writer on the internet. It is a blessing to take a break from all of that and focus on God. Sure, God's word engages with the world. Yes, at times, God's word sounds political, like when we talk about the sanctity of human life or justice for the poor. But even then, it's God's word for us. God is teaching us about his will. He's teaching us about his character. And it gives us a window into his heart of wisdom and love and glory. And so whenever that happens, it always transcends mere politics, mere worldly engagement. It's worship because it's about God. And so our Sundays are a blessed chance for us to rest to take a break from all of those things that consume our attention the other six days of the week, now is our chance to wholeheartedly enjoy God. These laws make us want to keep our worship pure. Second, if you embraced these laws from the heart, you would want to keep your sexuality pure. You, you'd want to keep your sexuality pure. These laws... These, this passage names uh, a truth that we would rather hide, uh, that we're reluctant to let God have full authority over our sexuality. Remember, remember the questions that, that I asked at the beginning. How dare you ask that? How would anyone even know? What's the big deal anyway? These, these questions reveal a heart that resents God's authority over our lives. And we have been plagued by that since the fall. And our original sin actually uniquely targets our sexuality. Because when did Adam and Eve realize and experience the shame of sin? It's when they realized that they were naked. And so a rebel heart in us insists that our sexuality is personal private, and seemingly inconsequential, but God graciously enters into that sinful struggle, and he gives us a promise. He says to us this morning, if you are faithful in personal, private, seemingly inconsequential things, then you will receive a blessing. 
God said to the men and women of Israel, if you honor my limits on sexuality, you will keep enjoying my presence at the tabernacle. And God says the very same things to us. Today, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. So God lives in you, in me, in all of us. He lives in our bodies the same way that he lived in the tabernacle. And our sexual faithfulness preserves that spiritual intimacy with God. Holiness is more important than sex because holiness gives us the experience of God. It gives us access to the Lord, and so we rightly uphold God's limitations and boundaries for sexuality. Sexual intimacy is reserved for marriage between a man and a woman. And in marriage, the limitations and boundaries continue. There's supposed to be no adultery, no pornography, because sexual intimacy is never meant to be selfish. It's always about self-gift. It's always meant to dignify, not dehumanize. And so when we love God with our whole hearts, we will want to keep our sexuality pure. And third, the third thing that happens when we love God with all of our hearts is that we'll want to keep our lives pure. Not just our sexuality, but our entire lives. These laws inspire us to honor God in everything, from the flocks and the herds that you raised, to the foods that you brought to the kitchen table, to your most tender behaviors in the delivery room, or the sick bed, even the marriage bed. Every single one of these was an opportunity to seek cleanliness so that you could keep seeking God at the tabernacle. And over time, as you continue to embrace these ritual habits, then you would have that desire in your heart continue to grow. You you would say to yourself, I want to keep my life pure so I can keep seeing the Lord. One scholar calls this holiness by grace. Holiness by grace, obeying God out of love for God. And so when you see your entire life stretching out before you as a series of opportunities to honor God, a few things dawn on you. First, as much as we value our personal space, nothing is merely personal. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are not your own You were bought with a price. And we've confessed that already this morning, haven't we, brothers and sisters? We are not our own. We belong to God. And he purchased us at a very high price, the death of his son on the cross for us. And so nothing you do is merely personal. And similarly, nothing you do is merely private. You are not your own. And that means that your behavior, your actions affect other people. It impacts your community. And we see that in Leviticus chapter 15. If someone failed to keep these laws, the entire community could suffer the result. 
Likewise, uh, personal faithfulness in these laws helped the community to keep enjoying God. And it's the same for us in these New Testament times that we live in. In Galatians 5, Paul lists 15 works of the flesh, and every single one of them had a social component to it. Every single one of those works of the flesh was a way that one person could negatively impact another one because of their behavior. And then Paul goes on to list nine fruits of the spirit, and every single one of those has a social component where the the fruit of the spirit in your life allowed you to uplift, elevate someone else in love. Nothing you do is merely personal. Nothing you do is merely private, and nothing you do is truly inconsequential. Every action that you take in your life answers to a higher question, will I honor God? Will I honor God in this or that small thing? Will I honor the Lord? And so when we love God with our hearts, In a wholehearted, sincere way, we will want to keep our lives pure from the things that wreck our relationship with God and spread and infect our community. And I'd highlight, based on this text, I would highlight these small things, the things that seem like no big deal. Last week, we called them small, sin-like tendencies. These are the things that that fly under the radar of our concern when we think about our sanctification and our, our growth in godliness. But these small things have a true and terrifying power to grow and harm. Things like grumbling, things like complaining or gossiping, bitterness, bitterness is a seemingly inconsequential thing, but it can infect your relationship with God and spread through your entire community like wildfire. And so keep watch, keep close watch on your words, on your thoughts, on these hidden things that you're gonna be tempted to say, who's gonna know? Well, this text says that God knows. And and the the challenges and the impact on the community is real. Keep watch on these things so that you can keep enjoying God. That's what these laws make us want. They, They make us want to keep our worship pure, to keep our sexuality pure, to keep our lives pure. There's just one snag. I maybe mean, you felt it as I was reading this text. If you took these laws seriously, you'd realize, you'd realize that even though everyday life is a great opportunity for you to express faithfulness in God, everyday life simultaneously made you ritually unclean, right? These are everyday things that made you ritually unclean. For faithful Israelites, every single day was a fight to remain clean. Of course, God graciously provides a way. He always does. 
Here in our text for a minor impurity, it's generally a wash and a wait. You wash yourself and your clothes and you wait until evening or wait until the seven days is over. For a major impurity, it's a ritual wait of seven days, that complete period of time. It's a ritual washing with fresh water and then a ritual sacrifice a purification offering to take care, to cleanse you from the defilement, and then a burnt offering for gratitude for healing. These are gracious provisions that our gracious God gave to these people because God wanted to be close to his people. But I have to imagine the faithful Israelites saying to each other, I wish there was a more permanent purity I see how my life, my everyday ordinary life defiles me, and I see how my sin corrupts me. Wouldn't it be great if God made us permanently pure? And that's where this text points us to Jesus. Jesus was the holy one of Israel, completely holy, completely incorruptible. For Jesus, his holiness was contagious. He touched the ritually unclean woman, someone who was suffering from the major ritual defilement of verses 25 through 30 in our text, and she did not make him unclean. He made her well. He made her clean. And he promises to do the same for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, again, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were made holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, on the cross, Jesus took all of our impurities and he gave us his purity permanently. In Christ, you were washed. You have been washed once and for all. That's why these rituals have ceased. We don't need to wash ourselves anymore because in Christ, we're pure. In Christ, our past sins have been paid for completely and our future sins have already been atoned for. And then when Christ comes again, he will welcome you into his heavenly kingdom where sin and uncleanness are banished forever and nothing will ever separate us from God's presence ever again. And so if you long for holiness, but you see your sin in your heart, if you believe in the Lord, but you also sense your unbelief, and especially if you bear shame and guilt for past sexual sins, know this, hear this, in Christ you are pure. If you trust in Christ as your savior, you are pure forever. In Jesus Christ, your purity is permanent. And so prize purity, prize purity in your lives. Seek pure worship, practice pure sexuality. Keep your lives pure because Jesus has already made you pure. And that's the message of Leviticus chapter 15 for us, faithfulness in personal, private, seemingly inconsequential things brings 
blessing. It brings us the blessing of God, the blessing of God's presence in our lives. And so as we follow God in faithfulness, as we confess our sins, resting on Jesus's forgiveness, striving for holiness by grace, that's the promise, that we will enjoy God, that we'll enjoy God through Christ, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing promise of intimacy with you that does fuel our desire to be near you. And we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross and for the indwelling Holy Spirit that makes us pure and holy now. And at the same time, Lord, we confess our rebel hearts. We confess uh, that we would rather the other way at these uh, small things that don't seem like a big deal. Our culture around us tells us it's not a big deal. It's so tempting to believe uh, that, that our faithfulness in these things doesn't actually matter. So forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for the ways that we uh, decrease your glory and say and that our, our fulfillment in these matters matters more than, uh, than your glory and our holiness. Forgive us, O oh God, and strengthen in us a desire to, to be pure, uh, to be pure in worship and sexuality and all of life. And as we seek purity in these things, I pray that you would give us your presence. Give us this Holy Spirit so that we would sense your nearness and your happiness with us. Give us joy in the Holy Spirit as we seek purity in our lives, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.